is the day that the world at large refers to as Easter Sunday. And the world has made a great day, or a great deal, a great thing, out of what has become known as Easter Sunday. And yet I think all of us must admit that over the last 50 to 60 years, it's changed a great deal. Because Easter Sunday is no longer the great fashion show that it used to be in years past. Usually at this time of year, a half century or more ago, the hat shops did a booming business. How many of you remember when there were shops that sold ladies' hats and nothing but ladies' hats? I can remember as a small boy spending some long, tiring, boring hours at the Gene Hart Hat Shop in Marshall, Texas. When my mother and my grandmother would try on every hat in the shop three times. And then they would say, well, let's go see if Wiseman's has some different hats. And if you're three or four or five years old, your heart just sinks and you just want to cry and it's not going to do any good. And yet, looking over the audience this morning, I don't see a single Easter bonnet. But everyone in those days had to have a new dress, new shoes, a new hat, a fresh permanent. Little boys had to have their little suits with their suspenders and their little bow ties. And you could see them sit there through church and do this because the collar on the little suit was chafing. Little girls had their new dresses, their new purse, their Easter bonnet. Most times wives begged their husbands, Honey, would you at least polish your shoes this week? The sermon would always focus on the risen Christ and the crowd would be larger than usual. It really didn't matter what the sermon was about because most folks weren't listening anyway. They were focused on what somebody else was wearing. Did you see that hat that Sister Sewing? That's the most hideous thing I ever saw in my life. I can't believe that Sister So-and-so got out wearing that dress today. Did you see the Smith's little boy? He looks so cute, but did you realize, did you see just how much Vaseline hair oil was in that little boy's hair? It was just dripping off. That's what people were focused on. Nobody heard the sermon. You see, most folks were focused on what other folks were wearing. But if you actually look at God's Word and you actually read the New Testament, we're not commanded to make a big deal of Easter Sunday. We're told to commemorate the Lord's death with the memorial feast we observed just a few moments ago. And in observing that feast on the front of that table, it says, This do in remembrance of me. Those are the words of Jesus. And in observing that memorial feast, we show forth His death until He comes. He told us we would do that. So this morning, I'm not going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. But I want us to think about one of the incidents that happened around the cross the day that Jesus died. I want us to think about Calvary. 
I want us to think about the love that was shown to us at Calvary. And I want us to focus this morning on the supremacy of love. Go back with me by an eye of faith. It's Friday afternoon in Jerusalem. It's a fateful day. It's a day that's designed to change the world. If you had been there, if I had been there, no doubt we would have been brought under the spell of all the excitement taking place because it was actually almost a carnival-like atmosphere. Three prisoners were on their way to pay the death penalty. One of them was a young prophet from Nazareth. The other two were revolutionists. And with a natural love for the gruesome, the crowd that was gathered there was hideously eager for the show. An eagerness brought about because these three condemned men were all well known. So in company with two rugged outlaws, Jesus is making His way to a skull-shaped hill called Calvary. Each one of these three condemned men is carrying His own cross. About the time the procession is making its way toward Calvary, another man, a man by the name of Simon, is setting out from the house of a friend going toward the city of Jerusalem. Simon has come all the way from Africa to, to attend the feast. This is perhaps his first visit to the city of his fathers. We're not told. But can you imagine having come all the way from Africa to Jerusalem for the feast? Can you imagine the eagerness and the enthusiasm, the excitement, filling Simon's heart as he makes his way to the city? And because of the crowds that are there for the feast, he has spent the night with a friend out in the country and making his way back to the busy streets of the city. The sights of the city are, are something that are thrilling to this man that has come from Cyrene. But as he reaches the city gates, he encounters a crowd of people going in the opposite direction. Well, guess what? How many of you have ever chased a fire truck or an ambulance to see what it was going to? Come on. How many of you? Nobody? Yeah, right. Nobody. Well, Simon, like folks chase fire trucks, he sees the crowd and it excites his curiosity. He's a man with a family. But down deep inside, he's little more than a big overgrown boy. And he's got a thoroughly human, childlike curiosity. So he's asked somebody, he said, what's going on? What's happening? Somebody says, we're going to Calvary. We're going to execute three prisoners. Well, that piques his curiosity even more because guess what? Simon's never been present for an execution. And this is his big chance. At least he'll get to see the men that are doomed to die. So he elbows his way through the crowd trying to get a ringside seat. I want you to visualize this. I want you to use your sanctified imagination. I want you to use an eye of faith. And I want you to see the procession of those three doomed men, those two revolutionaries and the prophet from Nazareth making their way to Calvary's hill. Each one of them carrying his own cross. 
And Simon's watching them and they're so close he can almost reach out his hand and touch them. And the two in front, the two revolutionaries, they march steadily forward bearing that cross. They're sinewy. They're lithe. They're strong as steel. Their faces are tanned. They're bold. They're hard. They exchange insult for insult. The crowd insults them and they insult them right back. Insult for insult they exchange with the crowd on their way to Calvary. They fought like men. And they're determined they're going to die like men. But the prophet from Nazareth is different. His face is not hard. It's a face that's full of an infinite pity. Mingled with immeasurable sorrow and pain. And then also, even though he is a man of fine physique, he's not up to the task of bearing his cross. Not because he was not every inch a man, because Jesus was. But because of the beating he's endured, he's lost too much blood. He's too weak. And as Simon looks on, this prisoner staggers and he falls. And his cross crushes him to the ground. And having satisfied his curiosity, Simon is okay. And he's turning to lose himself in the crowd. And just as he's turning away, a strong hand reaches out and grabs his shoulder. And a harsh, authoritative voice startles him from his thoughts. And the voice says, you there, make yourself useful. Take up that cross and get going. Simon can't even believe what he's hearing. Surely this soldier's not talking to him. But as he starts to turn away, the soldier's hand quickly looses his shoulder and reaches for the sword at his side. And in one swift motion, he raises the sword and Simon realizes something then. Simon understands he must obey. So he takes up that hated cross and he turns his steps toward Calvary. Now what I've done is I've given you some context, some background for our text this morning in Luke chapter 23, verses 33 and 34. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left, and then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That passage right there shows us the supremacy of the love of Jesus Christ. In the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world, we see love to its endless limit. That's what the golden text of the Bible says in John chapter 3 verse 16. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What's love? Like so many things, it's hard to define, it's hard to explain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul has a great deal to say about love. He tells us love suffers long. And he tells us that love is kind. And that love is not envious. He also says that love is not puffed up and does not behave itself in an unseemly manner. 
And he tells us some other things. He tells us love doesn't keep score. That love is not easily provoked. And that love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices in truth. Love has the ingredients of patience, kindness, generosity, humility, courtesy, unselfishness, a good temper, and sincerity. Jesus Christ is the essence of all of these things and more. His death on the cross. My friends, that is the greatest expression of love the world has ever known. And as Jesus hung there and as He died, Jesus did not talk about love that day in platitudes. What Jesus did was illustrate love in a very eloquent way. You see, the love of Jesus is so deep it can't be fathomed. It's so broad it can't be measured. It's so meaningful it can't be described. And it's so intense that it cannot be supplemented. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross on Calvary's hill reveals God to the world. God has revealed Himself to mankind in many ways. God has revealed Himself through nature and God has revealed Himself through His Word. And He did this finally and supremely through the death of His Son on Calvary. Through this demonstration of love, God crushed the serpent's head. God sullied forever the power of Satan. He gave victory over death and hell to everyone who would obey His will. You see, what the love of Christ does, the love of Christ actually reveals for us what sin really is. Over the years, a lot of folks have tried to picture the blackness and the bitterness and the horrible nature of sin, but no one's ever really succeeded. But the death of Jesus reveals sin in all of its sinfulness. Because there on that cross on Calvary's hill, the innocent died for the guilty. Love suffered the deepest agony so sin could be vanquished. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, He was wounded for our transgression. Jesus was bruised, He was battered, He was beaten, and He was stabbed. He was gripped by the agonies of death. Clammy sweat stood on His brow. His tongue cleaved to the roof of His mouth. He writhed in agony and revealed for us the agony of sin. But guess what? If the death of Jesus reveals sin for what it is, it does something even better than that. It reveals God's plan of salvation. God gave His Son as a ransom for the sins of the world. 
people yet unborn were aimlessly wandering and hopelessly doomed. The world was without God, without Christ, and without hope. And Jesus bore our grief. He bore my grief and your grief. He bore my sorrow, He bore your sorrows. On Jesus Christ was laid that day the iniquity of every one of us, you and me. And didn't Jesus Himself say, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost? When you look back to that cross, what you see is love suffering. The suffering of Jesus on that cross was intense. It was agonizing. It was fearful. And while He suffered, what did the crowds around Him do? They reviled Him. They made fun of Him. They mocked Him. His disciples and His friends, they left Him. They forsook Him. And yet, from the lips of Jesus, you don't hear a word. Not a word of murmur. Not a word of complaint. Jesus became a man. He suffered as a man. He felt pain as a man. And He died as a man. Jesus came from glory. And He came to save humanity. God chose His Son to become a man and die. He gave up heaven. He gave up the jasper walls, the pearly gates, and the streets of gold for the dust of this earth. And He came here and He was misunderstood. He was mistreated and crucified as a common criminal. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the boundless humiliation that our Lord suffered. He was despised and rejected of men. He was stripped of His garments. He was blindfolded, beaten with fists. And he died like a common criminal. And in the middle of all of that, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Would we have responded that way? Would we have had the love in our heart and the strength of character to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Or would we have said, you guys better hope I don't get down from here. If I ever get down from here, I'm going to get even with you. And it's going to be, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to get even with you. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. His royal robes were exchanged for a shroud. The only crown He had was a crown of thorns. And His kingdom shrank to the narrowness of a grave. And His only throne was a rough-hewn wooden cross. His only scepter was a weed. And all of that, let's bring it down where we live. All of that was for my sin. All of that was for your sin. But guess what? The love of Jesus lifts us up. Because Jesus Himself said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto Myself. 
There's power in the lift of Jesus. And that power fills the darkest night with stars of hope. Because the loving arms of Jesus Christ reach out to all the lost of every nation, everywhere, of all, all races of all times. So if instead of our going down to eternal ruin and perishing, God lifts us up. God lifts us up from the mire, the muck of sin. We sing the song, Love lifted me, and so it does. God's love lifts us up. Because God's love is an appeal to our hearts. We feel it tug, we feel it pull at our heartstrings because it's something that's alive and vibrant. God's love reaches down into the mire of sin. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save the worst of men and women who've ever walked the face of this earth. I read of a man one time who was a drunkard. He was actually on his way to prison because he'd been selling and making or making and selling what they called wildcat liquor. There was a gospel meeting going on. It had been going on for about a week and he attended the very last night. His wife and children had been there for every service. He learned of God's goodness. He learned of God's love. He obeyed the Lord and was baptized. He went to prison. He served his sentence. And he remained faithful to the Lord. And later, he served the church in his community as an elder and as an example to other people. Because of the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Christ. The gospel of Christ. Can work wonders. Write this down. It's on the final exam. Love. Is the most powerful thing. In the world. The gospel of Christ is. Saturated with it. It is permeated with it. Through and through. It lifts us out of sin and despair. It brings the prodigal home. To remember the goodness and love of the father that's one time been rejected. That love. That love calls to you right now. To make Jesus Christ the Lord and the master of your life if you've never done so. It calls to you to come back home. The lesson is done. The choice is yours. The invitation is that of Jesus Christ as we stand while we sing.